We turn once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll read the whole chapter together, and the text we focus on this evening is verses 1 through 3. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass, or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Let's turn back to the first three verses. Read them again, the text we focus on. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Beloved in the Lord, we return to the Bible's great chapter on charity, true Christian love, which as we saw last time, is more than just a gift, but is itself the more excellent way of the entire Christian life. Love, God-given love, is to permeate every dimension of our earthly lives. It is the end of the law unto which we are called. The whole will of God can be summarized in this, that we love the Lord with all our heart and love our neighbors as ourselves. And in this beautiful chapter... Paul explains what that more excellent way looks like. In this chapter, he gives us a description of love. 
In verses 1 through 3, which we consider tonight, the apostle explains the supremacy of love. The supreme importance, value, and worth that love has and ought to have in the life of the Christian. After which, in verses 4 through 7, he goes on to describe the attitudes and actions of love. That is, what love looks like as it is lived out. The character, the conduct of God-given love. Verses 8 through 12 focus on the fact that love is permanent. It is everlasting. And thus, the chapter concludes with verse 13. Sets before us the three cardinal Christian graces. It states that among these three, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Remember that last time we ventured to give a biblically based definition of love, and we defined love along these lines that love is a God given, heartfelt desire and faithful pursuit. Of the true good of another person. And that true good of another person is pursued through the giving of self. Often self-sacrificial giving. We're going to see now that that definition of love carries through the chapter. The rest of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. Because that is what God's love is. Love of God Shown to us in Jesus Christ. The heartfelt desire. Sovereign God. The salvation of his people. And his faithful pursuit of our true good. Our supreme good. And the gift of his son Jesus Christ. To redeem us from our sins. There we see. The supreme demonstration of love. And that is what Christian love is patterned after. So 1 Corinthians 13, we come to this chapter now, having looked at the last verse of the 12th chapter. And 1 Corinthians 13 opens with statements that are so astounding, we probably wouldn't dare to say them if God hadn't said them in His Word. These astounding statements consist of five poetic phrases with parallel structure. Though I, and have not charity, I am nothing, or it profiteth me nothing. And what the apostle does here is he goes through five of the things, five of the gifts, five actions, you might say, that Christians Esteem most highly and rightly so. Things that you would say, that is one of the greatest gifts of God. That is something of greatest importance, worth and value. Paul sets before us things that we esteem so very highly. And he says, without love, nothing. Unfruitful, unprofitable. Useless, without love. And in so doing, he impresses upon us the main point of these opening verse in the strongest possible way. He impresses upon us the supreme value and the supreme importance of love. True Christian love in every dimension of our lives. That is the preeminent fruit of the Spirit. 
which is necessary for all of the other fruits to flourish. Love is what makes the gifts of God, every spiritual gift, profitable. Love is that bond of perfectness that binds the Christian life together and binds the virtues of God's grace together. The greatest is love. And so tonight, we're going to consider that supreme worth of God-given love without which we confess we're nothing. So our theme is, without love, I am nothing. And in the three points, we're going to go through those five statements that the Apostle makes. And those five statements can be roughly grouped into three points, according to each of the three verses. So in the first point, we'll look at verse 1. In my speech, without love, I am nothing in my speech. Secondly, without love, I am nothing In my knowledge. In all that pertains to my knowledge. And then finally, without love, I am nothing in my service. My acts of service to others. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. The Apostle Paul begins with the gift of speaking in tongues. And the reason he starts here is that this was a gift that the Corinthians prized and coveted. Speaking in tongues was a special gift that God gave to certain persons during the apostolic age. Which enabled them to speak fluently in other human languages. Which before then they had not studied and had not learned and could not speak. You recall that the first bestowal of this gift of tongues took place on Pentecost when the Spirit filled the 120 disciples there in Jerusalem and they spoke in tongues to the amazement of the pilgrim crowd that had gathered in Jerusalem for the feast. The pilgrim crowd, which as Acts 2 tells us, exclaimed, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Yet, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And that points out to us the whole purpose of this gift of tongue speaking. It was a gift that God gave only during the apostolic age, and the purpose was not to be a showy manifestation of supernatural power, but tongues was given as a means for communicating the gospel. Remember in the book of Acts, the commission of Jesus Christ is given to his church that they are to be his witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, not only in Judea, but to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in order to facilitate the rapid spread of the gospel and the growth of the Catholic New Testament church, this gift was given to certain persons in the apostolic church so that they could speak of the wonderful works of God to people of other languages. And so, at that time, this gift of tongues was a very useful and valuable gift in the apostolic church. And so Paul brings that gift forward that the, that the Corinthians prized and looked up to. And then he goes even farther. As he does in each of these verses, he takes it to an extreme, as it were. The figure of speech is called hyperbole. 
he exaggerates to the highest degree in order to make his point. Though I speak in the tongues of men, many did. Paul even did, as we learn from 1 Corinthians 14. Of men and angels, he said. Now, there's no biblical record of anyone speaking an angelic language. It's possible that Paul himself heard an angelic language. In 2 Corinthians 12, you recall that the apostle was carried up into the third heaven where he heard wonderful things uttered, which it is not lawful for a man to speak. Perhaps he heard the speech of angels. But what Paul is doing here is he's taking things to the highest degree. Even if I spoke heaven's language, the most exalted language, the very language of the cherubim and the seraphim, how great a gift that would be. What amazing speech that would be. Yet, though I speak the tongues of men, and even if I spoke with the tongues of angels, if I have not charity, I am become as sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And that's the equivalent to how verse 2 and 3 end. I am nothing. It profiteth me nothing. And it profits others nothing. Speech. The speaking in tongues without love is profitless. A sounding brass, a tinkling cymbal. A sounding brass is an echoing gong. Gong is a very large disc of metal that's hung from a wooden frame. And it was an instrument that was often found in ancient temples and pagan temples of Paul's own day. And a priest or someone performing a ceremony would take a a great big drumstick and hammer against that gong. And when that gong was struck, it would emit a loud reverberating and resounding gong noise. Tinkling symbol. We all know what symbols are. Smaller discs of metal used in marching bands, and they're clanged together to emit a sharp, loud noise. While those two instruments may have a, a good role to play in a band when they are played in harmony with other musical instruments, we all readily get the picture. If you think of a young child hammering away on a gong or clanging cymbals together, not playing any piece of music, what kind of noise does that cause? A tinkling noise. That is a clanging, banging noise. These are not pleasing sounds in harmony. But this is a loud, an inarticulate, a chaotic, an abrasive, an annoying, a useless, meaningless, empty noise. And what effect would such noise of a clanging cymbal and a banging gong, what effect would that have upon you if you were in a room with all of that racket going on? Very quickly you're going to be irritated, distracted. And eventually it's going to drive you absolutely crazy. You're going to want to get away from that noise as fast as you can because it's an assault on your senses. You can't talk with anyone because you can't hear over all of the obnoxious noise 
You try to talk, but you can't understand, and so misunderstandings arise, and it's utterly profitless. The only thing you can do is try to get away from that obnoxious noise. And that's how Paul powerfully drives home his point. This lofty gift of speaking in tongues, and by implication every spiritual gift that God gives to his church, even if it's something so exalted as speaking in angelic tongues, which we doubt was a gift given to any. All of that, if it is not permeated with love, if it is not motivated by love, if it is not directed by love to the good of the neighbor, to a good end, it is as useful and as profitable and as beneficial as a clanging cymbal and an echoing gong. A bunch of obnoxious, useless noise that drowns out everything else. Corinthians needed to hear that. As we saw last time, they were so very tempted to value tongues all by itself and to value certain gifts so highly. And they were prone to use those gifts for personal gain or glory. And here the apostle says, no, every spiritual gift, useless apart from love. Love directs it to its proper goal of the edification of God's people and the glory of God. Though I speak in the tongues of men and angels, have not love, I am become as sounding brass, a tinkling cymbal. Now we apply that. Paul's personal here, isn't it? Notice that. As he instructs the Corinthians in the most important concept that they needed to learn and grow in Christian love, and as he implicitly rebukes them for their lack of love, notice his humility. He puts it in the first person. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Paul puts himself on their level. He's a brother in Christ with them who struggles with the same sins, who struggles with the same weak flesh. And in so doing, Paul also bids us to take this text and apply it very, very personally. Our first thoughts should not be going out to other people, the you's and the them's, but I, I. That's where the crosshairs need to be with the applications of this text. I, me. Though I speak tongues of men and angels, have not love, I become Sounding brass, a tinkling cymbal. None of us have the gift of tongue speaking. That gift passed away by the design of God at the end of the apostolic age. You and I have tongues, do we not? We have tongues. We have been endowed with the singular gift of speech. A gift that no other creature on this planet has a gift that in a special way reflects God, who is the speaking God, the God who exercises his power through speech. Back to Genesis 1, we see God for the first time and he speaks. 
It is a unique gift given to us as human beings that we have the power of speech, that we have tongues. And thus this text is applicable to us in this way. Every use of our tongue. Every employment of the power of speech. Whenever we use our tongues, whenever we employ that God-given power of speech, this love described here in 1 Corinthians 13 is to permeate our speech. It is to guide our speech. It is to direct our speech to that good goal. Back to the definition of love. Love seeks. Love is faithful and committed in its pursuit of the true good and blessedness of the other person. Is that our speech? A man may have a golden tongue. A person may be eloquent. He or she may be a wordsmith. Have persuasive power that allows him or her to accomplish great things. To move people. Even move nations. But God doesn't value that eloquence. By itself. It's an echoing gong. If. The spirit behind our speech. And if the spirit that animates our speech is not love. Our most eloquent and powerful speech. Is a tinkling symbol. Obnoxious, useless noise. Even hurtful noise that drowns out good speech. That is edifying and upbuilding. Without love. No speech, no words can truly profit. It will have results that are no more positive than a bunch of people who have no idea what they're doing going into the band room and grabbing all of the symbols and clanging them together. Is our speech like that? Are there areas in our lives where we are clanging cymbals and echoing gongs? Just think about that. What sort of words issue forth from our mouths in conversation with our friends when we disagree with someone? When we're talking about someone we don't get along with very well? What sort of speech characterizes us in the body of Christ? How do we speak? To one another, of one another. To our neighbor outside of the local congregation. Is love the animating spirit of our speech? Or is there something else? Apply it, to our, apply it to our home lives. How do we speak to our spouse? To our children? Are we clanging cymbals? It's very easy to speak with passion. It's very easy to speak out of pride. It's very easy to speak forcefully because I am right. And yet forget the most essential thing, 
charity. And when we do, we've become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. Loveless talk is like a band of clanging cymbals that drowns out good communication and even drives people apart because they want to get away from the noise. The obnoxious, useless, and even hurtful noise. The speech that is profitable. The speech that is fruitful. The speech that increases the well-being of the body of Christ, the speech that blesses the neighbor, the speech that ministers grace to the hearer, is speech filled with Christian love. And so let us, let us take to heart the personal applications that the Apostle sets before us here. Think about our words and think about the use of our tongues. Where am I a clanging symbol in my life? Where does this word prick me? Move me to flee to Christ in repentance. Seek of Him the strength, the grace by His Spirit to renew my speech and to renew my tongue so that my tongue may be an instrument of Christian love. Christ. Look to Christ. Christ of all men spoke in the tongues of men and angels. Not that he spoke a bunch of different human languages. We don't know that. But his speech was the truly heavenly speech. He came down from heaven to be our chief prophet. Who spoke with words of power. Who brought the words of the gospel to his people. Who spoke words of love. And he was perfect in his heart. In his motive. In his goal. In all of his preaching. In all of his speaking. And even his hardest words. And some of the words he had to speak were very hard. His woes to you scribes and Pharisees. Among others. All of his words were words of love to his people. Even those words of agony in the garden of Gethsemane. Those words uttered from the cross. Christ lived and spoke the more excellent way. Christ is the love of God incarnate. The love of God that accomplished the greatest good of us His people who are inherently unlovable and unworthy. And in that love He laid down His life. And went through the fullness of hell to make us His own. In Christ we find the power to love with our speech. To love our neighbor and to love our God in the use of our tongues. And that power is found when we meditate upon who Christ is and what Christ has done. His love. Then we want, we want to speak His language. Speak with His tongue. Well, now we come to verse 2. Verse 2, Paul moves to consider a cluster of related spiritual gifts which we can categorize under the heading of knowledge. And here Paul continues to advance his argument. He's going through those things which the Corinthians and which we prize very highly. Though I have the gift of prophecy, he says, 
and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Here Paul moves to the spiritual gift that he personally prized very highly. You can read that at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 14. Where the apostle urges the Corinthians to prize the gift of prophecy. Even above the gift of tongues. For the gift of prophecy especially edifies the body of Christ. Which is the aim of love. Prophecy. Prophecy was another special gift that God gave to certain believers in the apostolic age. Prophecy had a couple of main parts to it. Someone who was given the gift of prophecy received special revelation from God. Think of the apostles. Peter, that vision of the sheet coming down from heaven with the unclean animals in it. And God used that vision, that special revelation to teach Peter about the fulfillment of the Old Testament ceremonial law and the breaking down of the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. Those who were given this gift of prophecy received special revelation from God. But then the other part of the gift was the Spirit-given ability to explain and apply that revelation to God's people for their edification. It wasn't just the apostles that were given this gift. One example that we read of in Acts 11 verses 27 through 29 is a prophet named Agabus. And this Agabus was a member of the church in Jerusalem. And he predicted, not by his own powers of foresight, but because God revealed it to him, he predicted that there was a coming famine in Judea. And so in response to Agabus's explanation of this revelation from God, the church of Antioch took it upon itself to Gather a collection to relieve the saints in Jerusalem. There's the gift of prophecy. Receiving God's revelation and then explaining it and applying it to God's people. That supernatural dimension of prophecy passed away with the apostolic age. But we understand that prophecy as a whole has not passed away. In The New Testament age, after the time of the apostles, prophecy refers to teaching, to preaching. Prophecy is the the teaching ministry of the church. God has put teachers and pastors in the church and called them to proclaim His Word. His Word, which is the revelation given to us, which now is to be proclaimed and explained and applied. But prophecy doesn't only refer to the work of the pastors and teachers in the New Testament church. But prophecy is something also that belongs to the believer by virtue of the fact that he or she is a believer. The office of believer, we are prophets, priests, and kings under Jesus Christ. We have an unction of the Holy Spirit, which means every single believer can read the revelation of God. The revelation given to us in the scriptures can read it, understand it, speak about it, even explain it and apply it for the mutual edification of the body of Christ. By the way, that's why Bible studies are important. 
That's why the Bible study societies of the church have an important place in the life of the church. They're not just a frill. The Bible studies of the church is a way that the members come together to mutually exercise the gift of prophecy for one another's edification. To open up the scriptures, to read it, and to speak about it. Let no member here, man, woman, young, or old, think you must be silent all the time whenever the Bible is opened. Let no one think only ministers and only elders may Explain the scriptures. Every believer. Is a prophet under Christ. That doesn't cancel out the reality that Jesus is pleased to use an official teaching ministry in the church to proclaim the gospel. Yes. But the official teaching ministry of the church is built on the more fundamental reality of the office of all believer. And so let us not be afraid to open up the scriptures with one another. Yes, we must be careful. Yes, we must be wise in applying texts and explaining texts. But we mustn't be afraid to do that. Your prophets, beloved. What a gift prophecy is. What a gift it is to us in the church yet today. And now along with that gift of prophecy, the apostle mentions others. The understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge. And so here Paul is bringing us to see something that we value so very highly, do we not? Knowledge. And he's not talking about earthly knowledge. He's talking about the living spiritual knowledge of God and His Word. The knowledge of faith. The knowledge which our Essentials Catechism book says in question 1 and says rightly, is above all things most precious. Knowledge of God and His Word. Understanding of all mysteries. When the Bible uses the word mystery, it's not talking about a riddle. It's not talking about a problem that's difficult to solve or something you can't figure out. The Bible uses the word mystery to refer to the deep things of God. A mystery is a profound truth of God and His plan of salvation which is hidden from human perception. It is a deep truth of God that cannot be grasped apart from God's revelation and the inward illumination of the Spirit. For example, a couple chapters later in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 51, the Apostle calls our bodily resurrection on the day of Christ, to be a mystery. That reality of our coming resurrection is a deep and glorious truth of the gospel. It's a truth that human reason is never going to reach and discover on its own, but it can be known through God's revelation and by the inward illumination of the Spirit. And so an understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge draws before our minds the picture Of someone who is at home in the scriptures. Who understands the deep things of God. Who is able to speak about every topic of theology in the Christian life with mastery. Someone with a deep and comprehensive grasp of the Christian faith. What's not to esteem in that? That indeed 
is something to be highly prized and highly cherished. And knowledge and understanding of mysteries and the ability to speak the word of God. And apply it to my life and to others in my life. That is something we all should be striving for and growing in. Important. Paul is not at all minimizing that. And then Paul mentions faith on top of it. Faith. Faith. All faith such that it removes mountains. Here Paul is focusing our attention on faith and its strength. A strong faith. Faith which enables the believer to do the impossible. Like moving a mountain. This shows Paul's familiarity with Jesus' own teaching. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 17. Where he describes that, or he he speaks of how faith, even faith as small as a mustard seed, can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and it will be cast into the sea. And Jesus' point there is not that faith is some sort of magic power that the believer can manipulate to do whatever he wants to impress people. The point is, faith connects us to the Almighty God. Faith is that special instrument God has designed by which we are recipients of the blessings of God and receive strength from God. Faith taps into the power of the Almighty. And that's why believers are able to do what is otherwise impossible for them. Think of the example of Job who by faith endured unimaginable hardship and suffering. That was humanly impossible. But it was by faith. Not by his own strength, but by faith. Because faith connects to God. And faith taps into the strength of the Almighty. And so the Apostle sets before us here strong faith. The faith that moves mountains. All of this now. Prophecy. Understanding all mysteries, all knowledge, all faith. And notice the repetition of the word all. All of this. If I have not charity. I am nothing. It profits nothing. It is useless. We wouldn't dare to say that if the Bible didn't say it right here. The supreme importance of love is set before us. The greatest prophet with the deepest insight into God's word. He's nothing if he doesn't have love. The man whose faith is strong. That faith doesn't work by love. It's not fulfilling its its goal. God gives faith. And from faith springs love. There must be love. Love is the perfection that must characterize the life of the Christian. And without love, the Christian is nothing. Despite the great gifts he otherwise has received. Lofty as they may be. 
Now understand the point, and Paul's point here is not to devalue prophecy or despise knowledge or diminish the importance of faith. Not at all. But Paul chooses these things that we prize so highly and rightly so in order to drive home his point. That without love, even the best gifts are in vain. So Paul is personal here and he bids us to make personal applications once again here. Right away there's a humbling application for pastors. Love. There better be love. Preaching is the chief means of grace. God's pleased to use it to build the faith of His people. He's pleased to gather His church through preaching till the end of the age. God uses preaching to save. Yes, it's important. But that preaching must be joined with love. It must express the love of Christ. It must convey that love to God's people. And preaching without love is nothing. It will ultimately fail to build up God's people in faith, hope, and love. Despite the depth of exegesis, despite the power of a man's oratory, despite the power of his applications, if there's not love, that prophecy is a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. How important is love in the church? How important love is for the ministry of the church and the work of all of the office bearers of the church. There's an application for all whom God calls to office that this should permeate all that we say and do. And this should bring us to our knees before the throne of grace daily that we ask, Lord, kindle in my heart this love for Thee and for God's people so that this love carries through in all that I do. In preaching, in counseling, in elder visits, in diaconal work, in the church assemblies, in missions, in everything. If there's not love, it's nothing. Apply this to our individual lives. Is there love in your marriage? Love of the biblical sort? The ardent desire and committed pursuit of your spouse's good, even at your own expense. Is that the love that characterizes your marriage as husband and wife? If not, nothing. Nothing, the Word says. We may celebrate 40, 50, 60 years. There's not love. Nothing. And thus, the call to cultivate that love and to show that love intentionally, purposely to one another as husbands and wives. In the raising of our children, rightly there is an emphasis in the church. Bring up the child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Teach them the knowledge of the Scriptures. That is a must. Don't forget love. The true love of the Bible. If we give our children everything, 
We can set them up to succeed in the world. We can fill their heads with knowledge. We can discipline them well so that they're well behaved. But if we do not show them Christian love, if they do not experience the love of Christ through our parental ministry to them, I'm nothing. And it profiteth me nothing. Our life together as church. What gifts do we prize? What are the things that we may be tempted to take pride in and say, this is why I'm here. This is why I belong to this church or this denomination. Let us be wary of pride. Knowledge must be joined with love. And love renders knowledge fruitful. Love renders knowledge edifying. Love puts knowledge in the service of the upbuilding of the body of Christ. Love puts knowledge in the service of the good of the neighbor. But if knowledge and pride become joined together, then that knowledge begins working in a ruinous way. That knowledge can produce Pharisees with heads that are full and puffed up, but hearts that are empty. And there we see how easy it is for knowledge to become nothing without love. Love. So the message that was given to the Corinthians is a message that comes to us as we cherish the good gifts of prophecy, of understanding, of knowledge that God has given. Let us be all the more intentional. Join them. Wed those gifts to Christian love so that love guides us in the use of those gifts. We go to Christ once again. We see our own faults. We see our own failures. Christ. The perfect prophet. The one who really did understand all mysteries and all knowledge. The one who used his wisdom and his knowledge to accomplish our supreme good. With what prophet? Christ. Though he was God the Son, humbled himself. He was not puffed up. He was not arrogant. And though he truly had all things, and according to his divinity, understood all mysteries, yet he was still the humblest and the meekest of men and went to the death of the cross, became obedient unto the death of the cross for us. By his humility, we are exalted. There's the pattern for the church in the use of her gifts of prophecy, knowledge, understanding, not to puff up, but to serve. And that leads us to verse 3. My service. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 3, Paul sets before us two Ultimate examples of giving. Which we can classify under the the heading of service. That which is done for someone else. 
And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Paul is building to things that impress us so very much. He started with that gift of speaking in tongues. Then he went to those gifts that are so highly prized by the church throughout the ages. Prophecy, knowledge, understanding. And now he goes to those actions that we would esteem most commendable. Is it not religion, pure and undefiled, to visit the widows in their distress? And part of that is ministering to the poor. Look at this man who gives all that he possesses to feed the poor. What benevolence. That's good. We would hold that in esteem. And again, Paul gives us a supreme example of it. While all Christians give of what the Lord has given them. Here we have a man who does what what nobody does. He gives all that he has to relieve the poor. And the idea is not that he gives it all away at once, but that he's constantly giving. He's constantly giving away his wealth. Every time he, he runs into someone who is in need in the body of Christ, and among his neighbors, he gives, he gives, he keeps on giving. What service? And then the apostle goes on to set before us the ultimate act of service, the ultimate gift. Laying down one's most precious possession. One's own life. Though I give my body to be burned. Here Paul likely has in mind martyrdom. The giving of one's life in the cause of Christ. Suffering for Christ and dying for Christ. Even in the most extreme way. Few ways are worse to die. Giving one's body to be burned. The greatest suffering. The greatest service. And the point is made all the more powerfully. Is it not? You can do the greatest things. You can endure the greatest suffering. You can undergo the greatest persecution. You can perform the most praiseworthy deeds. Of devotion. But without love. If love is not behind it. If love is not in it, if love is not directing it to its goal, it profits nothing. Why do we serve? Why do we want to serve? Spouse, friends, fellow believers in the body of Christ. What is it? That motivates us. Or if we don't really want to serve. Why is that? Paul presses the personal application. More excellent way. Is the way of love. Love sees the neighbor. Love sees the brother. The sister. Love desires. The good. The well-being of that brother, that sister, now. And love sees a need. And love wants to minister to that need. And love gives of self to minister to that need. And love delights to see that need fulfilled. And that brother, that sister, blessed. And so in love then, our possessions become a vehicle through by which our love reaches out to our neighbor. Our lives become a conduit for God's own love to reach the neighbor. 
God's love which He has shed abroad in our hearts is meant to flow through our hands and through our mouths to our neighbor. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian service. We go to Christ again. There we see it. His perfect love, His perfect giving, His perfect service. He gave all. He gave all His goods to us poor sinners when He forsook His glory in heaven and was born in the lowly manger and lived His life of suffering. He forsook all to give all to us poor sinners that through His poverty we might be made rich. There is love. He laid down the most precious possession of His own life on the tree of the cross. Gave His body to be nailed to that tree. Gave his soul to go through the very fires of hell for us in our salvation. How great and valuable is love. Supremely. Because in love, in love for each other, we get to reflect that love of Christ. We get the privilege of being a means through whom God touches the life of another with His love. That's Christian service. That is blessed. And so we conclude by applying this to the Lord's Supper. We come to the table of the Lord next week. And what will be at the table. But the visible sign and seal. Of God's love. For his people. In Jesus Christ. Let us come to the supper. With these words of the apostle. This word of God inscribed upon our hearts and minds. We come to the supper. So that we might be strengthened. And so that we might grow. In this love. And now we go into a week of self-examination. And part of that self-examination is to look over our lives and examine our hearts. How are we loving one another? Is love permeating my speech? My use of knowledge and gifts? My service? And we come to the table, hungry for Christ, hungry to be fed with our Lord, His good gifts, so that we may go forward to walk zealously in this more excellent way. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the powerful word of this text. Which sets before us the supreme value of love in the body of Christ. Grant us, Father, that grace so that we may more and more walk this more excellent way. And in every area of our lives, show this love to one another and toward Thee. We pray that Thou wilt bless this week of self-examination. That we might come to the, the table next week prepared and ready. 
to partake of thy good gifts. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.